Uh, good morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. My name is Kevin. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. If this is your first time, uh, welcome. We're glad to have you. Uh, I just want to spend a second introducing um, Justin Sarah to you. Um, Justin is a, a friend of mine who I met through Acts 29. For those of you guys that don't know uh, this about us, um, our church is a church planting church. And so it is in our DNA. We started as a church plan. As a matter of fact, as we've been trying to remind you guys over the last several weeks, we're celebrating our 10th birthday in uh, March. So we want you guys to be ready for that. Um, but one of the things that's in the DNA of our church is church planning. We believe that the kingdom of God and the gospel continues to go forward through church planting. And so Justin's a friend of mine who I got the privilege of assessing uh, about a year and a half ago. He's going to be planting an awesome church in the spring of 2024 uh, in Orlando. And he's going he's gonna to bring the word to us this, this morning. But uh, we wanted to let him come up and preach because we want some of you to prayerfully consider moving to Orlando and joining and being a part of their church uh, in, in, in the future. And so for those of you guys that are graduating, Orlando is a great place to get a job, much better than Gainesville. I know when I talk to you seniors, you're like, wow, we would stick around here, but y'all don't have any good jobs around here. Orlando doesn't have that excuse. So maybe, maybe the Lord might want you to join Justin and his team and to see a church planted in South Orlando for the glory of God. So I'm going to pray for Justin, uh, and then we're going to hear the word he has for us, and we're going to we're going to worship God through the proclamation of the words. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Justin. We thank you for his family. We thank you for the calling on their lives to see another gospel-centered church planted in Orlando. God, will you bless him and his family and their team as they continue to prepare the way to be ready to launch in 2024? Or might you call some in this room this morning to join them in that mission? And may we see more churches planted in the state of Florida, all over the East Coast, all over the U.S., and around the world that declare the glory and majesty of who you are. Lord, will you be with my brother this morning as he preaches to us? Thank you for his time and attention to prepare this word. Lord, may it be used to call us to repentance. May it be used to help us to rest in the finished work of Christ. And it may be used ultimately to your glory and your renown. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Check. Am I good? Yeah? Okay. Well, good morning, family. Uh, yeah, we're going to have to work on this. I'm a, we, 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 I'm a talk back person. You know what I'm saying? You don't got to do it, except you have to. So, well, it's good for me uh, in my soul to see the faces of people that I have prayed for without ever meeting. And so I am glad to be here. I want to thank the elders for their trust and their confidence to be before you in this way. This is truly, truly a privilege and joy of mine uh, to be on this Lord's Day here with you in this Advent season. So as Kevin said, my name is Justin. Uh, I'm coming to you from Cross Point Church, where I serve as an elder and a church plant resident. Uh, getting ready to plant New City Fellowship in the southernmost annex neighborhoods of Orlando. We've lived, my wife, Adriana, and I have three wonderfully savage little boys, uh, eight, six, and five. Um, we, 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 we are getting ready to plant this wonderful church there. We love church planting. Like, you don't even have to take it from me. She's sitting right there. You can ask her. Like, we love this work. It fills our cups. And so I just want to thank y'all. Mm, look at you. Servant of the Lord right here. 
God bless. Anyway, you ready to study your Bibles? Okay, we question, answer. You ready to study your Bibles this morning? Oh, there we go. See, it's not hard. This is going to be a thing for the next like 40 minutes. I'm just going to let you know. Just buckle up. Um, anyway, why don't you turn with me to Malachi 3. And uh, as you get there, I want to frame our time. Uh, it, it, my favorite part of this time of year is the transition. It's when the decor in the house changes, the smells in the air. My wife likes to put peppermint oil and all the diffusers in the home. It's, it's the food we eat only this time of year, the family we see only this time of year when driving through a neighborhood at night is actually fun. It's uh, the change. That's what I'm talking about. It's all pointing us to something, every experience reminding us to remember, to keep in mind the coming holiday. But if we're honest... What this time of year does also, and for some of you, this may be more true than others, is this time of year provides a welcomed distraction. A distraction from all the hardness and weariness of this past year. The world that you and I live in demands so much from us, takes so much from us. You compare today to how you began the year. You, 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 you probably began the year with so much energy, so much hope, so much excitement for a fresh start. And for some of you, not all of you, those goals, those milestones, you, you did it, you crushed it, you nailed it, but it didn't come without cost. The hardships, it didn't come without hardship. Maybe, just maybe the victory of the war didn't compare to the losses of the battles. And that's where you find yourself this morning, distracted from the discouragement because everything around you preaches to you merriment and joy and peace on earth. That's what, that's what this, is, this time of year is supposed to do. It's supposed to get you right. The environment is supposed to lift your spirits. And maybe to some degree it does, but in the quiet... If we're honest, there's still some darkness. I know that ain't all of you. That might just be two or three of you, but I'm going to join the three of you because I find myself there too. And yet, family, there's good news for us in this church for this morning, yeah? There is good news. See, the church calendar is set in such a way that this time of year, beginning last week and for the next three weeks, we engage in a lovely tradition. For the church, historically, this time of year, we don't look first across the table to family for comfort. We don't first look under the tree for joy. We don't first look around at the mirror to ourselves for reassurance and safety. This time of year has never been and will never be about all the things you and I use to find a break from the broken reality around us. But instead, the church calendar points the believer to something else. The Advent season tells us to remember the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. 
That's, that's what Advent means. It's Latin for coming or arrival. It's the anticipation of the arrival of someone, someone who has come and is coming again. And that's where our text meets us this morning. Malachi, the book, is written as a conversation. It's, well, it's more like an argument between God and Israel. There are six discourses or six arguments throughout the book. And a final warning is given in chapter 4. And here's what's at play. Israel is having a hard time feeling the love of God on them. They look around to what should be a great time in their history. They have been liberated to some degree from their exile, allowed back into their land, allowed to rebuild the temple, allowed to continue to freely worship and embrace their cultural identity once more. But they look around and... They don't see what they thought this great season of freedom and prosperity would be. Everything around that preaches to them that their home in the land of their ancestors, they're back in their space, not under the foot of another nation in chains and forced labor. They're no longer hunted, but that's not what they see. When they look around, they see a ghetto temple thing is raggedy. There's no true independence or monarchy. They are not their own. When David was king, there was a million soldiers. They were respected, feared. When, When Solomon was king, there was so much gold, Solomon didn't know what to do with it. He was putting it on soldier shields. There was none of that. They were taxed heavily. They were living in tents. The priests were crooked. And that discouragement, it festered. That discouragement festered and it became weariness. How God told them to live, they became lax in. They took shortcuts. And all the promises God made to them became points of contention. So much so, they started to look for the results of the promises of God in other things. In what they can do for themselves. That created a compromise in their testimony, a a spiritual unrest and spiritual unhealth in their lives. And so God, through the hard-hitting, power-punching preacher Malachi, reminds them once more of the supreme promise he made to them. And that is where we pick up in this book. I want to title our time in this text, Help is on the Way. Help is is on the way. I'm going to talk to you from that thought because church life is hard. Yeah. Life is hard. And yet the encouragement for us as it was for Israel is that God has brought the solution to our greatest problem in the first coming of Jesus and gives hope for today's problems by having us look towards his second coming. In the first five verses of chapter three, we'll highlight three points of emphasis, three quick points, and then I'll be in my seat. I'll try not to yell at you for too long. Hey, can we do something? I know we read the text, but would you stand with me for the reading of God's word one more time? And then I want to invite you to pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from the Lord. That cool? I'm just trying to get your blood flowing. You know what I mean? Look around and see y'all napping. I'm going to get discouraged. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And it reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 
and the Lord and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. If you're a highlighter, that's that's the part. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. Would you join me in prayer? God, we come into your house as weary guests. We come tired and smelly from a lifetime of travel. We come aching and sore from a lifetime of baggage. Father, may we find your house, your word, and your table a balm for our weariness, a respite from our travels. And at your table, may we taste and see that you are good. Father, would you gift me with clarity of speech and thought as the preacher, and would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors? In Christ Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. In C.S. Lewis's classic book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a little girl named Lucy finds herself in a very intense game of hide-and-seek with her siblings. Searching desperately for a place to hide, she finds a quiet room that is empty except for a majestic wardrobe that stands opposite her. As she hears the footsteps of her older sister come charging down the hallway, Lucy quickly jumps in the wardrobe and backpedals her way all the way to the back beyond all the fur coats, except this wardrobe has no backing. What was the soft and mothy smell of coats now becomes the prickliness and smell of pines. Lucy discovers that the wardrobe is actually a doorway into a magical land that is covered in snow and terribly cold. After searching for some time in this magical land, she meets a fawn by the name of Tumnus. And after a few back and forth questions about who he is and where she is, Tumnus explains that she is in Narnia and that there is an evil white witch who is not native to the land but made her way to it and now claims to be queen of Narnia and she has broken everything. He says this exactly, it is winter in Narnia and has been forever so long. Always winter, but never Christmas. Imagery aside, can't you relate to that family? Can't you feel the weariness of this life like cold on your bones? All the year long, you and I have been burdened by a world that is not supposed to be. Between the personal struggles, family struggles, political turmoil, global catastrophe, worlds or wars and genocide, always winter but never Christmas. 
between death, disease, divorce, financial hardships, let go from your jobs, health conditions, wayward children, lost siblings, and stubborn parents always winter but never Christmas. For those of us struggling with mental health for the first time or for the upteenth time, cycles of depression, sleepless from nightmares, the pounding of your chest during anxiety spells, you have strived throughout all of this world's issues and have come to the end longing for freedom and have yet to find it always winter but never Christmas. We, like Israel, have a major problem. A major problem. And it's, as I said, our world is not as it's made to be. Something happened in our history. Something was done to make all the good things undone. And if we look back all the way to Genesis 3, we see that when Adam, humanity's representative, sinned, it didn't just cause friction between man and God, but all things became messed up. Theologians call it a cosmic fracture. When sin entered the world, the universe broke. Stars began to die. Natural disasters began to take shape and devastate. The world breaks and it gets worse and worse and worse. Family, you need to know, as much as it is true that the world around us wearies us and situations and trials fall into our laps that don't necessarily originate with us, that is not the whole truth. The whole truth is not that our lives are messy because everyone else's sin or the effects of Adam's sin. The whole truth is that our lives are messy because we, you and I, are messy. If we took Adam's place, the outcome would be no different. Sin is far more deadly than the most aggressive of cancers, far more contagious than any COVID variant. It it plays no favorites. It doesn't discriminate. It shows no partiality at all. It kills everything it touches from Adam in the garden to you in Gainesville. Sin has taken many prisoners to its depths. And friends, the bad news is there's nothing you could do to escape it. If you read through the entire book of Malachi, which you should, it's maybe it'll take you an hour, maybe. What you'll come to find is that sin, our personal sin and the effects of sin around us distorts our ability to see the problem as it truly is. Sin teaches us to shift the blame from it to something else. Y'all quiet. I wish I had some sinners in the house who knew what I was talking about. Sitting there saying, yeah, that's true. See, sin has a way of making you question the love of God over you by questioning the things God says. God sets up boundaries for us, ways to live so that we may not be ensnared. But what sin does is whisper gently, there's another way. The Israelites in their sin lack any sense of God's love by questioning his character and slowly growing in disobedience with seemingly small compromises. They polluted their offerings, polluted their marriages, neglected to tithe, and considered God's cause, his plan for restoring the world, futile. Oh, let us learn from this church. 
let us learn when our sin and the effects of our sin are minimized in our hearts and minds, God's grace is minimized too. When sin becomes no big deal to you, slowly do the things of God. Slowly do you come to question the love of God towards you and the justice of God towards others. I need you to hear that again. When sin goes unchecked in your life, slowly you'll begin to question the love of God towards you and the justice of God towards others. The true solution to our greatest problem becomes distorted to us. We want God to fix us the way we want to be fixed. We want God to bless us the way we want to be blessed. Malachi has a word for us this morning. God, through the prophet Malachi, sets about restoring the relationship between God and Israel, not by giving them what they ask for, but by reminding them how the solution to their problem was already in the works. He reminds them of what they already know. He reminds them of something they took their eyes off of in exchange for something lesser. If I could bring this up to you, God loves you so much that he's already taken care of the biggest problem you have. Oh, thank you, sister. God loves you so much that he gives you hope for any problem you have had, now have, and will have. He's a full-service God. He doesn't take half steps. Your greatest enemy, your greatest problem, your biggest giant was already dealt with in Jesus. And what you need this Advent season, what you need in this metaphorically weary winter season is to remind yourself that Christmas has come and it's coming again. Help is on the way. I'm getting ahead of myself to come back. I want you to look at verse 1 of chapter 3. But before I do, actually, before I do, we have to remember that chapter numbers and verse numbers aren't canon, right? We did that to help us. Chapter, verse 1 of chapter 3 comes immediately after verse 17 of chapter 2. Remember that Israel has been arguing with God. They have been growing impatient with them. Their sin has blinded them from the truth. And so they have questioned his love and now question his justice. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. My bad. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? God tells them, your misguided accusations tire me. I am wearied by your cynicism. Family, let, let, let this show you that if, and that's a big if, if there was only two things God cared about, more than anything, it's his love and his justice. God here is insulted insulted that Israel would believe that he would compromise his own self. They blasphemously insist that God is actively pleased with wickedness. Israel thinks God is actively pleased with other people's wickedness. You see how convenient that is? No, don't get it confused. Israel doesn't feel picked on. 
They're not telling God, you're concerned with our sin when you should be concerned with theirs. That's not the crux of their argument. They argue we're blameless. We have not slacked. We've broken no rules. We're the victims of other sins against us, and you're ignoring their sin. You see the difference there? It's self-righteousness. They don't see their own sin. They only see the sin in everyone else and tell God, you okay with that, huh? They accuse God of being on the wrong side. And God replies, you weary me. You weary me by asking me where I am when I'm standing here talking to you instead of talking to them. You weary me by accusing me of not doing to them what I ought to do to you. You're not listening, church. Some of us have a self-righteous disposition. Some of you, some of us, I'll throw myself in there. We agree with the concept of personal sin. But functionally, our emotional real estate, our mental capacity is tied up with our victim complex. We say things like, I know I'm not perfect, but... Or, I'm not one to judge, but don't mistake this as a problem unique to Israel. Our hands are dirty here. Your hands, my hands are dirty here. And look at God's response. After God expresses his disgust in their despair, he doesn't speak a word against them, but instead reminds them of something. This is where we go to verse 1 of chapter 3. He reminds them, behold, behold. I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Part part of this response is actually funny because God's being a little sarcastic with them. He says, the Lord in whom you seek and in whom you delight. Well, we just saw that wasn't true of Israel. They were growing in unbelief, not seeking. They were growing in compromise, not delight. God is pointing out how they should have been, not how they presently are. He says, behold. This this word, behold, this, this is a royal pronouncement. It's to signify a change in tone, okay? It's to declare a royal decree of justice. God is already about to satisfy their request for judgment. That's not amazing. That's amazing to me. Amen. All by myself. They said, where is the God of justice? And God says, behold. And he tells them about a day that's to come and two coming people. A messenger to prepare the way and second, the Lord. In other words, God reminds them help is on the way. And you'll know when he's here because I'm going to send someone to prepare the way for him. Your sin is the problem, but I'm sending a herald, a voice, a messenger to declare the coming of its conqueror. Oh, church, this this word messenger is another note, is, is is another word that notes royalty. See, when a king needed to declare news to the people, 
The king would send a herald or a messenger to go out into the middle of the cities and towns and declare the king's decrees. God is saying, I'm sending help. I'm sending the Lord, the Messiah, the king. And you'll know when he's coming because when he's here, I'm also sending a herald, a forerunner, someone to go before and to announce it to the world. Again, family, this this is not new news to Israel. They have heard about this forerunner, this messenger before. They, They heard it during the Exodus and they heard it from the prophet Isaiah. But it's Isaiah's words that are my favorite in chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. A voice cries in the wilderness. Malachi talks about this messenger again in chapter 4. He says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before a great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So who is he? Who is this messenger? Well, the Gospels make it abundantly clear that this messenger is John the Baptist. John's Gospel says that John the Baptist carried with him the spirit of Elijah. And Mark's Gospel says that the Gospel begins with a voice crying in the wilderness, and then he introduces us to John the Baptist. So if John is to prepare the way of the Lord, who is the second person in verse 1? Well, we need to know what John the Baptist said. JTB had a real simple message. He declared, repent and believe. Repent. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. John's message was of warning and of hope. Repent signified a warning for a coming judgment. He was warning the people that the one who comes after him is coming to judge the world. This this tells us The gospel begins with understanding sin. And this is my second point. If we understand sin, then we understand that justice is due. See, John did something nobody else in history was doing. He was baptizing people. He was baptizing them in repentance. He would preach about sin how it separates us from God. And the punishment for sin was utter destruction. Look at, look at God's last words written in Malachi. Uh, uh, these are the last words God will say for the next 300 years. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to, the, to their children and turn the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land down with a decree of utter destruction. The last words in the Old Testament are a warning. God is saying there will be a day when access to me is cut off. Where your sin will have hardened you to the degree where you will turn away from me. And all that will be left for me to do is strike down the land. You want justice Justice will come. But it will not only come to your enemies, it'll come to you too. Can you imagine Israel receiving these words? God, you let our enemies prosper. You let these crooked nations tax us. We're living in tents. Our temple is trash compared to what it was. There's no prestige here. 
Other nations look at us like we're sloppy. Where is your justice? And God says, oh, justice is coming. Justice is coming, but I will not play favorites. It's coming for all. Family, your sin, my sin, demands justice. Justice is due for our sin, for the punishment of our sin, and it is the wrath of God. See, Israel had no vision for their greatest problem. Sin had already done its work in their hearts. They believed God was just good and always good to them. They forgot he wasn't safe. That his glory will not be defamed. That his holiness will not be compromised. That his authority will not be challenged. Don't err the same way, family. God is not safe. I can't tell if you're sleepy or struggling, so I'm going to give you another illustration. I'm going to go back to Narnia. Is that okay? I think it's sleepy. (laughs) Eventually, Lucy goes back to her world and brings with her into Narnia her three siblings. And as they enter Narnia, they all feel the tremendous cold, even through thick fur coats. As they wander about, they see a beaver who beckons them to him. And as they begin to talk, the beaver delivers horrible news. Mr. Tumnus has been taken. He is now a pillar of stone, he says. The cold is getting worse. The trees are spying. All the news that one could interpret as a lost cause. But Mr. Beaver whispers something strange to the children. He says, Aslan is on the move. At those words, each child feels a different but similar warmth in their soul. So Mr. Mr. Beaver invites them over to dinner where his wife, Mrs. Beaver, is a wonderful host. You know the story. In their home, it is warm and it's safe. And in their conversation over dinner, the beavers explain that Aslan will come and make all things right in Narnia because no wickedness could stand in his presence. The, The witch could do nothing to harm him. They say, All will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes its mane, we'll have spring again. Lucy Lucy asks an important question. She says, is Aslan a man? To which the beavers say, certainly not. He's no man. He's a king. He's a lion. The lion. The great lion. Lucy says, well, I'm scared to meet a lion. I've never met one before. I'm kind of terrified. Is is he safe? Mr. Beaver goes, have you not been listening? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. John preached a way out. John said, Help isn't just on the way, it's within reach. The kingdom of God is at hand. And at hand didn't mean that it was coming on some imaginative day. It meant that it was there and within reach. John preached that there was a Messiah king bringing with him a kingdom all his own. Not a kingdom of a specific nation, but a kingdom whose borders cover every nation. 
Not a king for a specific people, but a king for every tribe, nation, and tongue. And Jesus shows up to be baptized by John, and John stops everything and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This was Jesus' crowning moment, and it's good news for us, church. The king is here, and no, he's not safe, but he's good. And God explains how in the next verses, and I want to finish this. Look at verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? God asks the question, when he comes with judgment for sinners, who can stand? Nobody. Nobody. Not you, not I, not them. Nobody. That's who, on our own, we cannot. Without an advocate, without a mediator, Without a substitute, without some kind of divine intervention, we will burn in the flames of his judgment. There, there, there's an implicit rebuke to Israel. You complaining about judgment for others, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get judged yourself. Right? Speaking of fire, that's exactly what God calls him. But look at the wording here. For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. (laughs) He's a specific kind of fire, right? He's a specific kind of fire. I like Piper's commentary here from a sermon he did back in the 80s. He said, he's a refiner's fire, and that makes all the difference. A refiner's fire does not destroy indiscriminately like a forest fire. A refiner's fire does not consume completely like the fire of an incinerator. A refiner's fire refines. It purifies. It melts down the bar or silver or gold, separates out the impurities that ruin its value, burns them up, and leaves the silver and gold intact. He's like a refiner's fire. Amen, all by myself. That's beautiful. But what about Fuller's soap? A Fuller's job was to cleanse and whiten cloth. Wool garments would be taken to a Fuller's field outside of the city because the smell was so strong. And the Fuller's would take the cloth and submerge it into a large waist-level basin. And they would submerge it all the way down so that, the, uh, so that the, the garments would absorb the soap, which was made from certain plants. Then the fuller would take it out and beat it with sticks and rocks and grind it against uh, 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 like a little grinding thing. I can't remember the name right now. Only to have, only so that the oils and the smells and the stains would be taken away. And if, and if the stains were so bad, if the garment was so big, they would go inside the basin and tread on it with her feet. I can only help you with illustrations so much. Malachi is saying the sons of Levi, basically the priests of Israel, will be refined and purified. Only they will have their impurities taken away and they will come out acceptable to the Lord on his day. I want you to know, family, that this is for you and I. This is for you and I. Let me make my case. The kingdom of God John preached about had a king who came not like every other king or ruler or political leader you and I are familiar with. This king came not to be served, but to serve. And Jesus came not to sit on the throne of King David or to be covered in the gold of King Solomon. Instead, he came 
poorly and lowly in the ghetto of Nazareth, and he still lived perfectly, keeping every law of Moses and every Levitical tradition. He fulfilled every Jewish custom and every Hebrew expectation, and he did it all for you, and he did it all for me, because like Israel, like all of humanity, we can't keep up. We can't measure up. The standard of God is too high, so God's justice comes, but not upon us. Though we deserve every ounce of his wrath, but he pours it upon his son, the Lord, the King, the Messiah. God made him who knew no sin to be the perfect sacrifice and delivered him up on the cross. We deserve, but don't fret. Death couldn't hold him and the grave couldn't contain. Sin's curse is now broken because of the lamb that was slain has been raised. And now he sends the Holy Ghost to live within us so that every trial, every problem and every sorrow will not crush you, will not destroy you, but be like fire and soap. You will be hot. You will get tread upon. But is it in vain? Absolutely not. Peter tells us all in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that because God has loved us so, because he has chosen us, we are all the royal priesthood now. Because God has drew us near to himself, now we lay down our lives in sacrifice. So now we are the sons of Levi and Malachi, the royal priesthood of God. In Christ, we are now being refined and purified. The weariness of this life beats us down, wears us out, but now we have hope. No trial, no suffering comes to us without having already ran through the good and sovereign intentions of our Lord. You heard that? Nothing you and I will experience in this life is meaningless. None of it is purposeless. You can be honest this Advent season about where you are at. You are tired. You are weary. You may even be troubled. God has a purpose for it, family. He is refining you and making you white as snow. Here's the even greater thing. There is no process. There is no part of this process of the refining fire and fuller's wash that is left unattended. You ain't listening to me. None of the refining fire or the fuller's wash is left unattended. In neither of these processes are the metals or the cloths just left there on their own. The blacksmith and the fuller both are there every step of the way, making sure that the fire does not consume and the soap does not damage. Oh, church, nothing. Nothing you go through can destroy you or damage you. You are being refined. You are being cleansed. All in the creator's hands and under the Lord's careful watch. David says in Psalm 121, our God does not sleep nor slumber. God does not sleep on the job or forget you were there. Instead, he promises to be there with you always. And make sure you persevere until that great day comes when your refinement is complete and the washing is all done. When you become as spotless as his son, perfect and glorious he is. Yeah, he ain't safe, but my, 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 is he good. Y'all sleep. I got to close. I'm out here sweating. Willa Cray said, you got me sweating like a preacher in a pulpit.
verse 5. Malachi chapter 5. Or chapter 3, verse 5. And I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi is saying here, he's not a refiner to everyone. He's not a refiner to everyone. When he comes, he will refine some and consume others. He's refining those who have repented like John preached. He's washing those who believe in the kingdom and its king. And so, family, that's what I lay before you this morning. I don't know you. I'd like to move on down to Orlando. It's nice there. <laughs> but whether you don't know where you're at in the faith or you know for a fact that Jesus is not yours, I want to make this plea to you like John. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right there. It's right in front of you. Look around the room. Those are its citizens. Remember an hour ago you were listening to its music. And now you have heard from its king. God gives you, God give you eyes to see it this morning. God loves you. So much so, he spared nothing to get you in. You are not here on accident, nor coincidence. I started this, this sermon telling you help is on the way. I want to close by telling you this. Help is already here. Trust in him. Can I pray for us before I go? Yes. Jeez, Louis, we got to work on this. Don't move to Orlando if you're not ready to yell back at me. I'll let you know right now. Gainesville, just right for you. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. There we go. That's what I'm talking about, brother. Two hours away. We do it. We two hours south. Take the turnpike. <laughs> it's all right. God's working on all of us. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, you have been a perfect host. In your home, we have found belonging. In your word, we have heard your voice. Now, as we come to your table in a little bit, may we remember your son. May the work you began this morning carry on into the rest of our lives. Jesus be glorified. Amen.